0: Uh, it would have on his body if he ate McDonald's three meals a day for 30 days straight. And he got several doctors to monitor his health and he documented the whole process. And, you know, he actually started out in in fairly good health. And, uh, over this 30 day span of time on this McDonald's diet, it really messed up, uh, his health. He gained 24 and a half pounds. Uh, his cholesterol shot up 65 points. Uh, his body fat percentage went from 11% body fat to 18% body fat. His liver became super fatty. Uh, his kidneys produced kidney stones. Uh, he doubled his risk of heart disease and heart failure. Uh, he lost almost all of his energy, was tired all the time, had huge ed- headaches, was depressed. And moody, and all of this happened in just 30 days of eating McDonald's every single meal uh, every day. And this is kind of an extreme experiment that reminds us that our diet impacts the quality and the quantity of our life. You know, if Morgan Sirlock kept eating McDonald's every day, it definitely would have drastically impacted the quantity of his life. He would have died a very young man, but it also would have impacted the quality of his life. He would have just been, you know, zapped of all of his, uh, just his strength, his energy. He would have become more and more depressed Um So this is kind of that extreme example of what happens to your body when you eat unhealthy. You know, a healthy person will become unhealthy very quickly when they eat unhealthy food. But, you know, the opposite is also true. If some of them is very unhealthy, they're overweight, and they decide, you know, I'm going to make a big change in my life. I'm going to go to healthy food, and all my meals are going to be healthy. You know, they would see the opposite result of what Moreland Spurlock experienced. You know, they're going to uh, lose a lot of weight. Their cholesterol is going to go down. Their body fat percentage is going to go down. Their organs are going to become more healthy. They're going to be less likely to have heart disease are gonna gain energy they're gonna be less depressed and moody and they're gonna have you know just a lot more good experiences so what you eat impacts the quality and quantity of your life eating healthy food helps you to be healthy eating unhealthy food causes you to be unhealthy or as it said you are what you eat now the reason I share this is because the same thing is true spiritually you are what you eat spiritually. And this is really kind of at the heart of the message that Jesus has been sharing here in John chapter six. If he was gonna kind of give a title to his message, this could be a title that would sum it up. You are what you eat spiritually. And you know, Jesus is sharing this message and it's something important to note is It goes out really to three different groups. Last week, we started with the first group that Jesus was kind of addressing because they pose a question to him, and and that first group is the group that he fed, that he fed miraculously with five loaves and two fish, and so, you know, as he starts his message there at a synagogue in Capernaum, he's kind of directing it to this crowd who's been following him, and we note what he did, what he said, what his message was to that crowd last week, and he basically reveals to them that, hey, you're seeking me for physical bread that perishes, but I have something far better for you. I can give you bread that will last for eternity, that would bring you eternal life. And so he says, stop laboring, stop working for this physical bread. Instead, labor for bread that lasts, bread that will bring spiritual life. And so they ask Jesus, what shall we do that we will do the works of God? And Jesus gives that wonderful answer, The work of God is that you believe in Him who He has sent. There's only one thing to do in order to receive these spiritual blessings, in order to receive what God has, you got to put your trust in Jesus. And the reason you should put your trust in Jesus is because He's the bread of life. He can offer you these wonderful things. And we ended that section with Jesus sharing four great things that He gives to those who come to Him, those who believe in Him and trust in Him. He says He will not cast them out. He will not lose them. He will raise them up on the last day. And He will give them eternal life. So this first group that Jesus is kind of addressing is this group that he fed miraculously with five loaves and two fish that followed him from Bethsaida all the way to Capernaum. They're in that synagogue. They're listening to him share. But there's two other groups that Jesus is going to address in the remainder of John chapter 6 that we'll look at this morning. The second group, are religious leaders. Matthew's gospel tells us that the religious leaders came out there to Jesus, ultimately to kind of test him. You know, they were coming out with you know a motive that was wanting to kind of destroy his work and his ministry. And so they are there in the synagogue. There's a representation of these religious leaders there with the purpose of trying to undermine Jesus's ministry. And they're not happy with Jesus's statement that he is the bread of life, which came down. From heaven. And so they're going to, you know, respond in a negative way towards that. And so Jesus is going to address them. Uh, The first portion of the message that continues on is gonna be towards this religious leader group. And then it's gonna end with Jesus posing a very important question to his disciples, and they have a wonderful response to that question. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the rest of this teaching that Jesus gives to the religious leaders and to his disciples. And I want us to really ponder something as we go through that. And, you know, as we think about this reality of you are what you eat spiritually, that Jesus is going to continue on just kind of expounding on this reality that what you take in is going to have such a big spiritual impact on your life and so what does your spiritual diet consist of what are you consuming to try and satisfy that spiritual need in your life and what kind of impact is it having on your spiritual life So we're going to pick up where we left off last week, right in the middle of this sermon of Jesus. And now it's going to kind of transition from being directed towards these people that He fed miraculously, towards those who are not happy with His statement that He's the bread of life who's come down from heaven. Picking up in verse 41 of John chapter 6, it says this, "...the Jews then complained about Him because He said, I am the bread which comes down from heaven." And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Now, throughout the Gospel of John, John uses the term the Jews regularly. And for the most part, he's not speaking about Jews as, you know, this nation as a whole. When he says the Jews, most typically, he's actually being more specific and referring to the religious leaders. And that's what we see in this instance as well. And so when he says the Jews, he's not just saying, you know, any old Jew. He's speaking about the religious leaders that were there in the synagogue uh, with Jesus. And notice that these religious leaders, they complained about something that Jesus said, that he said, I am the bread of life which came down from heaven, that they took issue with that. They took issue not only with the fact that Jesus would claim to be the bread of life, but probably even more specifically, they took issue with the fact that Jesus would have the audacity to, to say, I came down from heaven because they understood that Jesus was claiming to be more than just a man. Because no one who's just a man comes down from heaven. Now Jesus was making a God claim, that only God comes down from heaven. And so they put two and two together. They understood what Jesus was claiming when he was making this claim to come down from heaven. And notice what they say uh, in response to Jesus' claim that, that he is God, that he's the bread of life, that he came down from heaven. They say, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? how is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? You know, the religious leaders are basically saying, hey, hey, we know Jesus. I mean, we know where he grew up in Nazareth. We know his family. We know his parents. We know his father, Joseph. And so how is it that he can have the audacity to say that I have come down from heaven? You see, their complaint against Jesus is basically, we know you've come from an earthly father. So how can you claim to come down from heaven. How can the son of Joseph who was born on this earth claim to be the son of God who came down from heaven? You know, that's kind of their reasoning. That's the what they're kind of throwing out to the people who are there in the synagogue. And we'll see how Jesus responds to their complaint in verses 43 through 46. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he was from God. He has seen the Father." So notice the religious leaders at this point are not even bold enough to kind of just pose this, you know, complaint to Jesus' face to say it out loud to him. They're kind of complaining among themselves. You know, who does he think he is? You know, we know who his dad is. How does he dare say that he's the bread of life who comes down from heaven? But they're not like raising their hand and and interrupting Jesus and, and saying, who do you think you are? How dare you say this? But, but Jesus knows what's going on. He knows what they're murmuring and complaining about. And so he addresses this issue and tells them to stop murmuring and then he answers their complaint. Now, since their complaint centered on Jesus's earthly father, Joseph, the main thing that Jesus wants to reveal is you missed something very important. Who my true father is. You're thinking, well, we know that, you know, you're Joseph's son, that you were here on this earth. How could you claim to come from heaven? He said, well, that's because you don't recognize who my true father is. And so the emphasis of Jesus' response comes back to the connection that he has with God the Father. In these four verses, notice that Jesus mentions God the Father four times, and each time he mentions God the Father, he's mentioning God the Father in the connection that Jesus has this intimate relationship with him, but also he's mentioning God the Father in the reality that the religious leaders don't have a connection. So he's trying to help them see, hey, hey I have this great connection with the Father, and you guys don't have one at all. And so the first thing that Jesus says about his connection to God the Father and the religious leader's lack of connection is this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. So here Jesus reveals his connection to God the Father by saying, God the Father sent me. Jesus is saying, hey, I was once in heaven. I was once with the Father, and he sent me down here to this earth. And Jesus goes on to say, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws him. What Jesus is saying is a very important truth to understand for anyone who is coming to Jesus. No one can come to Jesus unless God the Father draws them. Not only did God do all the work, as we looked at last week, when they say, well, what's the work that we should do? And Jesus is like, well, actually, there's, there's no work that you do. You just believe in me. You believe in the work that I have done for you. It's not a work that you do for me that gains salvation, that gains my love and approval. It's faith in the work that I've done for you. So not only has Jesus done all the work necessary for salvation, but guess what? The Father's also the one who draws us to Him. The Father's also the one who initiates our desire to even come to Jesus, to even recognize our need for salvation, to all that starts with God. So He did all the work necessary. He also does all the work to draw you and I to Him. And the result then of being drawn to God and making a choice to accept Jesus is that Jesus will raise you up on the last day. This is speaking about the people who stand before Jesus on the last day, the great white throne judgment. There's going to be those who are going to be judged. Everything that they've ever done is going to be written in books, but there's those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, those who put their trust in Jesus, who are going to escape the judgment of God. But those who reject the drawing of God, they're not going to believe in Jesus. And they won't be raised up by Jesus on the last day. Instead, they'll be judged by Jesus and cast into hell. Now, the fact that the religious leaders are rejecting Jesus, it reveals something very important. Reveals that, hey, they are rejecting the drawing of the Father. Because if they were receiving and accepting the drawing of the Father, then they would accept Jesus, the one that the Father is drawing them to. So since the Father sent the Son... A rejection of Jesus' Son is a rejection of God the Father as well. The second thing Jesus says about His connection to the Father and the religious leader's lack of connection to God the Father is, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Me. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 54, 13, something these religious leaders should have been familiar with because they prided themselves in their knowledge of the Old Testament Scriptures. And so Jesus is wanting them to see this reality of Isaiah speaking about the Father teaching the Israelites. But notice what Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, this is an interesting thing because one of the big claims that the religious leaders would make is, oh, we hear from God. We learn from God. Actually, we're more learned than the rest of the Jews. You know, we have this you know role where, where we're those who just saturate ourselves in the Word and we know the Word and, and we've learned from the Father. And so, you know, they would pride themselves in this reality that that is kind of where they stand. Well, Jesus says, he who has truly heard and learned from the Father, that person's going to come to me. You see, since the Father sent Jesus, and since the Father draws people to Jesus, if you actually are hearing and learning from the Father, then you're gonna come to the one he sent you're gonna come to the one that he's drawing you to and if you don't do that it shows that you're not hearing from God it shows that you're not learning from God and so once again Jesus is connecting himself to the father but also revealing to the religious leaders their lack of connection because they won't come to Jesus they won't believe in Jesus and so they're actually not hearing from the father and they're not learning from the father Charles Spurgeon, he wrote this. This was to say the Father has never taught you. You have learned nothing from Him or you would come to Me. But in your rejection of Me, you prove that you are strangers to the grace of God. Another reality for these religious leaders that they completely seem to miss. The third thing Jesus says about His connection to God the Father and the religious leader's lack of connection to God Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he was from God, he has seen the Father." Another thing that the religious leaders boasted of was this special, intimate relationship with God. That their relationship with God was superior just to the the average Jew, the one who wasn't nearly as spiritual and religious as them. And so they kind of boasted in this, you know, this intimate, this special relationship that they have with God, and it's deeper, it's greater, it's a, a deeper connection. And notice what Jesus reveals. Hey, you know, you've never seen God the Father. Actually, no one has ever seen the Father, except for me. I have seen the Father because I'm from the Father. And so once again, Jesus is is wanting them to understand His connection to the Father as He was with the Father before the Father sent Him. That's why He can come down from heaven, and that's why He has seen the Father, and yet they don't have that relationship. They don't have that connection or that privilege. This is why Jesus can say He is the bread of life that came down from heaven. Why? Because He truly did come down from heaven. He has this special connection with God. So now that Jesus has addressed this complaint that they had of how dare you say you came down from heaven, He's also going to address this issue they have with Him claiming to be the bread of life. Verse 47 Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in Me has everlasting life. At the beginning of this message, when Jesus was addressing this crowd that he miraculously fed with five loaves and two fish, he basically told them the same thing, that he's the bread of life and that anyone who believes in him will receive everlasting life. Well, Jesus reiterates the same message to the religious leaders. Guys, I want you to realize this isn't just for those I fed with five loaves and two fish. This isn't just for those who, who traveled all the way from Bethsaida here to Capernaum to seek me out. I offer this to you, to those of you who have come to undermine my ministry, to those of you who, who don't really believe in me. If you will make a choice to believe in me, to trust in me, you as well will receive everlasting life. You know, this is just the wonderful reality of Jesus, that He makes this available to anyone. No matter how messed up their background, no matter how sinful they are, no matter how much they were against Him at one point in their life, if they will come to Him and trust in Him, He offers this wonderful gift of salvation and everlasting life. Jesus goes on to say, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So Jesus is now contrasting the manna that those who lived in the days of Moses received in the desert versus what you get when you trust in Jesus, the bread of life who came down from heaven. And the big difference here is the manna from heaven, all who ate of it, they're now dead. That manna from heaven was just physical bread that only produced temporal life. It could help sustain you. It could help you live a little longer, but it couldn't produce anything eternal. And so everybody who ate that manna, they're all dead now. Jesus wants to reiterate that point, but you know what? He's saying the bread that I give? Oh, you're not going to die. In the sense of you will live for eternity with me in heaven. Now, Jesus has used this metaphor of a bread several times in his teaching. He's called himself the bread of life, the living bread. I'll give you this bread, 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 bread has been over and over this metaphor that Jesus is using. And the reason that Jesus is using bread as a metaphor is because it's the staple food that the Jews ate. It would have been an easy thing to understand and connect bread with life. With something that sustains life, because even for the poor, that's what they had. You know, they might not have had the meat, they might not have had the good food, but bread was that staple. I think if he was talking to an Asian culture, he might say that I am the rice of life. You know, he would say to maybe another culture, I'm the pasta of life. You know, using that staple food to make the point that I am that thing that sustains and gives life. It'll satisfy your hunger. It'll enable you to live. So Jesus uses this metaphor because he knew they're going to be able to make that connection between bread and something that gives life. And now Jesus is going to make very clear what he means when he says bread. If anyone's kind of confused, if anyone's not really sure, what is it you're talking about when you speak of being the bread of life, giving this bread, Well, what are you referring to? What is it you're actually giving? Well, Jesus is going to clarify that right now. The bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So when Jesus says he's going to give bread, that's going to enable you to live forever in heaven. He's speaking about his flesh. He's speaking about his body. And notice he gets even more specific when he says this, my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Well, this should lead us to ask an important question. When did Jesus give his body for the life of the world? Because answering that question will make it very clear what Jesus means when he's referring to himself being the bread of life, this bread that he's going to give or give. So, So when did he offer his body for the life of the world? Well, he only did it once. It's the most important event in all of history. It's when He went to the cross. He gave His life. His own body was crucified. His blood was shed. Why? For the world. So that the world who are sinful can have their sins forgiven. He gave His life for the people of the world. F.F. Bruce wrote this, to give one's flesh can scarcely mean anything other than death. And the wording here points to a death which is both Voluntarily, I will give and vicarious for the life of the world, which clearly points to Jesus' death on the cross. So Jesus is making it very clear that this metaphor I'm using about me being the bread of life, it's referencing, it's pointing to, it's speaking about the sacrifice that I am going to give. I'm going to offer my body for the world to give people life. And that is why Jesus can say, whoever eats this bread will live forever in heaven. You might be thinking, well, wait a second. I thought there was only one way to get to heaven. And that was to put your trust in Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross and what He did for us. Exactly. But that's what Jesus is speaking about when He says, hey, you eat this bread, you'll live forever in heaven. Because this bread is referencing my body, which I sacrifice on the cross for the world. Well, let's see how the religious leaders respond to what Jesus says here in verse 52. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So once again, we see the religious leaders quarreling among themselves and they pose this question. How can this man, how can Jesus give us his flesh to eat? You know, with this question, the religious leaders are concluding that Jesus is asking them to partake in cannibalism. That he is asking them to literally eat his flesh. Now, Jesus' metaphor about bread, I don't think that was hard to understand. Just like you eat physical bread that gives you physical life. You need to eat Jesus, the spiritual bread that will give you spiritual life. It wasn't some difficult thing to grasp, especially for these guys. It should have been clear to any sincere listener that Jesus was not speaking of literally taking a bite out of his arm, literally eating his body. He wasn't referring to any type of cannibalism. And this is why I believe this question from the religious leaders wasn't just a misunderstanding of what Jesus says. I personally believe that this was a dishonest question that they were purposely twisting Jesus' words in order to cause dissension, in order to discredit Him. And this shouldn't be surprising because this is what we've seen with them in their interaction with Jesus every single time. They lie about Him. They get others to lie about Him. They try to get Him in catch-22 situations where they think no right answer is going to be good, like, hey, should you pay taxes to Caesar or not? You know, they're, They're always trying to do things to discredit Him and destroy His ministry. And so it shouldn't be a shock that in in this moment as well, they would take the clear teaching of Jesus and that they would twist it to something else in order to try to discredit, in order to get people to walk away from Him. Now, it is possible they misunderstood what Jesus is saying, but I think from the response that Jesus gives to them, it's clear that He understood that this was willful, that this was a purposeful um, twisting of His words. Notice how He responds to this question in verse 53-58. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For My flesh is food indeed, and My blood is drink indeed. He who eats My flesh and drinks My blood abides in Me, and I in him. As the living Father sent Me, And I live because of the father. He who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. You know, if the religious leaders sincerely misunderstood what Jesus said about being the bread of life, I think Jesus would have helped them see the error we saw that with Nicodemus, when Nicodemus didn't understand what it meant to be born again. Jesus helped him to see the error. We saw that with the woman at the well when, when she didn't grasp Jesus speaking about you know living water. He helped her understand it. But with the religious leaders, Jesus's response is a little different. He kind of just doubles down and takes what he just said and just adds to it. you know, just makes it even more extreme. Not only do you have to eat my flesh, but you also have to drink my blood in order to have eternal life and have me raise you on the last day. And so, oh, I don't know if we can handle what Jesus is saying here. I mean, is he telling us to be cannibals? And you think, oh, you totally misunderstood what I said. No, that's not what I said at all. Jesus takes that and says, not only am I saying you got to eat me, you also got to drink my blood. Because Jesus realized you're just trying to twist what I'm saying. And so I'm going to double down with what I'm saying. And actually in doubling down, I'm going to make an even more important point. Another picture, actually two pictures with this that I think would have been clear for them to see if they were honest listeners. The first picture is of fully taking Jesus into your life and abiding in him. You know, just like if you eat something and drink something, guess what you're doing? You're fully taking those things that you ate and drank into your life, and they are literally abiding in you. And this is why Jesus says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. You see, Jesus is speaking of an intimate relationship of abiding together with him. That when you trust in Him, it's not just I believe that He exists. No, that there's a trust in the the person of Jesus. A trust that leads to abiding. That I am now in Christ and He is in me. And this is what the Bible says. When you put your trust in Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus dwells in you. And then there's this wonderful phrase that we see throughout Scripture that we are also in Christ. And so there's this wonderful abiding work that happens when you place your trust in Jesus. And he's trying to bring this to light here. You know, this is what I'm speaking about when I say you need to trust me, that this is abiding trust in me. And then Jesus uses his own relationship with the Father to kind of add to this necessity of abiding and how it brings life. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. See, Jesus lives because that abiding relationship with the Father. And he's saying, you know what? For you to live, you have to have that abiding relationship with me. Just like I have it with the Father, you need it with me, and it'll bring you life. So the first picture that this would have painted is of fully taking Jesus into your life and abiding in Him. The second picture would be one of sacrifice. You know, when you think of sacrifice and especially to these religious leaders, there are two essentials that are connected with it, flesh and blood. And so if Jesus brings up both of those, it would have kind of brought this picture of sacrifice to the minds if they were honest listeners to those who were hearing it. Richard Trent said this, Jesus gave them a further statement with they Doctors of the law, well-versed in the theory of sacrifices, would not fail to understand. The eating of the flesh and drinking of the blood was a plain allusion to the sacrificial idea. Now remember, the last thing that Jesus said before these guys got all upset, before they started complaining, was the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Jesus makes very clear what the bread is. It's my body, which is going to be sacrificed. And now once again, he wants to allude to that reality. Yeah, my flesh and my blood are essential because both of those are going to be sacrificed. And that is the thing that you're actually going to have to trust the sacrifice that I have done. And notice that several times, Jesus reveals something very important. They have to make a choice in order to receive the eternal life that He offers. Whoever eats my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life you got to choose to do it whoever feeds on me will live because of me who eats this bread will live forever it's a choice you have to choose to eat it you can't just look at it it can't just sit in front of you this gift is offered and you have to make a choice to do something with it we have to eat it for it to have any benefit to us you see we're spiritually hungry But unless we eat what Jesus offers to us, we will stay spiritually hungry. I mean, the same is true with physical bread. You know, if you can know the ingredients of the bread, that's not going to satisfy your hunger. You can see that loaf of bread. You can smell it. That's not going to satisfy your hunger either. That'll just make you more hungry. You can take pictures of your bread and post them on Instagram. That's not going to satisfy your hunger. You can tell people about how good the bread looks. That won't satisfy your hunger. You can sell the bread. That's not going to satisfy your hunger either. Nothing will satisfy your hunger except actually eating the bread. And the same is true with Jesus, the bread of life. So many people are trying to satisfy their spiritual hunger in all sorts of ways, and Jesus is saying, there's only one way it's going to be satisfied. You have to choose to eat Me. Trust Me. Believe in Me. And the spiritual hunger that you have will be met because I will meet it. So in response to the religious leaders who have twisted Jesus' words and meaning, He just makes His metaphor stronger, not weaker. He refuses to back down from the truth of what He is saying that He is the bread of life and the substance of that bread is His sacrifice on the cross. His flesh and His blood are going to be given for the life of the world. He doesn't shy away from that in any way, shape, or form. Let's see how his listeners respond to this latest metaphor, verses 59 and 60. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? Now, John tells us many of Jesus's disciples heard this. Now, when John uses this term disciples, he's using it in a very general sense. Usually we hear the term disciples, we think of the 12. He's not referring to the 12. We're going to see the 12 in a moment. He's just referring to followers of Jesus in general. Now, remember, so many people came all the way from Bethsaida to Capernaum, and they probably would have said that they were disciples of Jesus. We're now seeking him. We want to follow him. You know, they had different motives and different reasons for that. And so when John speaks of the disciples listening, he's really focusing more on this crowd that Jesus fed miraculously, that has moved there to the synagogue, listening to Jesus. And this is the response that they have to what Jesus has shared, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? now my version says understand it but the greek word translated understand here that's not really the the best translation uh some of your bibles uh will say who can listen to it others will say who can accept it uh, both of those would be more accurate translations the greek word means to listen and accept what you hear so i actually think the probably the, the best translation is who can accept this you see, this is what's important to understand. They're not saying this is a hard saying to understand in the sense that this is incomprehensible. I-, I don't understand how what Jesus is speaking about. It doesn't make any sense. That That's not what John is referring to here. He's saying this is a hard saying to accept. I get what he's saying. I, I understand what he's saying. I just find it hard to accept it. Hard to believe it hard to actually act upon it. That's what they're saying here. And I want you to understand the group that it's coming from because this crowd, you know, they first started following Jesus because of the physical bread, what Jesus could offer them physically. Remember also, they they wanted to make him their king. Oh, you, you would be a great king to help us overthrow the Roman government. You know, that was their motivation. And now they come and they listen to Jesus. And he's talking about, you know, don't worry about the physical bread. I can give you everlasting life. I can give you spiritual bread. And all you have to do is put your trust completely in me. And they're like, that's not a message I like. I didn't follow you for that. I don't want any spiritual bread. I don't want to trust you with my life. I want you to give me more physical bread and I want to make you king and I want you to overthrow Rome. That's my desire. And so this is a hard saying for me to accept because it goes against what I want from you. It goes against of what I perceive the Messiah to be, what I desire the Messiah to be. And so that's why it's hard. They, they, they could get it. They just didn't want to accept it. And that's where a lot of people are. When they find out who Jesus is and what He offers, and, and that He's not, you know, there to be their genie. He's not there just to give them all this stuff. A lot of people, are like, well, forget it. You know, I don't want to follow Jesus if I had to give him my life. If I got to trust in Him, if I just get eternity. You know, what about here? What about now? You know, I just want this and that and that. And so, a lot of people are just kind of like, nah. That's a hard saying to accept. So, the people listening to Jesus have a hard time accepting the truth. And let's see how Jesus responds verse 61 when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this he said to them does this offend you what then if you should see the son of man ascend where he was before it is the spirit who gives life the flesh profits nothing the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life but there are some of you who do not believe for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him And he said, therefore, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. Jesus knew that what he just shared, that there were those who had a hard time accepting it. Actually, it went to a point of complaining about it. And notice what he says to them. Does this offend you? Jesus knew that this truth he shared offended people. But here's something I want you to note about what Jesus does. Jesus, after he offends his people, doesn't cause him to change the message. He didn't take it back. Oh, you guys are offended. Well, let me backtrack here for a moment. Oh, you don't like what I said here? Well, let me just change it a little to to make it so you do listen to it, so you are willing to receive it, so so you do like it. He's saying, hey, I'm speaking truth. If you're offended, oh well. I'm not going to change the truth because you're offended. I'm not going to back away from the truth because you're offended. This is the reality of who I am. And this is the reality of how you get saved. If you're offended by that, so be it. And I think this is something so important, especially in our culture today, where it seems like everybody is offended for the littlest reasons. And sadly, in the church world, we got people who are saying, you know what? We better walk away from what God says. You know, the Word of God says things that are offensive to people, and so we better not bring that up anymore because people are getting offended. And the loving thing to do would just be not mentioning that, not speaking about that, shying away from that, backtracking from those stances. And you even got denominations who were doing that, saying, well, we used to believe this, but not anymore, because that's offensive. Notice that's not what Jesus does. He says it's offensive tough. This is true. This is the reality of it. You can accept it. And be saved, or you can reject it and be damned. That's a choice for you, but I am not going to shy away just because you're offended by the truth. Now, we shouldn't be purposely trying to offend people, but the reality is the Word of God offends. And we need to be more concerned about fear of God than fear of people. And I think that's the problem. Oh, we're so afraid of what the culture is going to think if we stand for this biblical truth. Well, what about when you don't stand for biblical truth? Guess who that offends? That offends God. Aren't you concerned about that? Aren't you concerned about walking away from biblical truth that offends God? It seems that many aren't. They're more concerned about offending the culture than offending the one who they should be afraid of, who they should seek to not offend. Jesus, He stood for truth. He wasn't offended or He wasn't moved by the offense of these people. And He goes on to say, well, what then? If you should see the Son of Man ascend where He was before. Jesus said, saying, hey, if you see me ascend back to where I went, ascend back to heaven, would then you believe? Would you believe I came from there if you actually saw me going back? Would that change your view? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. You guys shouldn't be offended by my words. My words are spirits. My words are life. My words are the things that you desperately need to believe, desperately need to accept. But Jesus was aware of his audience. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. As Jesus shared with people, he knew why they were there to seek him. He knew those who would accept him and those who would reject him. And he even knew in his own 12 who would betray him. Judas he was aware of it he wasn't ignorant to it he wasn't shocked by it he was completely aware of these things and then Jesus says therefore I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him by my father just like with the religious leaders Jesus is telling them hey if you're not willing to come to me it shows that you have an issue with the father who draws to me it hasn't you have an issue with the father but notice the ultimate response of many Verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Once again, disciples in a generic sense, not speaking of the 12, but many of those who made the journey from Bethsaida to Capernaum, many of those who said, oh, it's time to follow this uh, rabbi here, Jesus, he can produce bread, he could be a great king. Well, after this message, I'm not following you anymore. Many of them decided not to continue following Jesus. They stopped following Jesus. And now Jesus is gonna pose a very important question to his disciples. And I want you to picture the scene. It's kind of like a church service. That's what a synagogue was. And I can just imagine that it's packed full of people, and all this happens, and then some of the you know elites and some of the more influential, you know, they're like. I'm stopping following this guy. They walk out, they leave, and then more and more people go. And perhaps it's just Jesus and the 12. I mean, that might be all who's left. We don't really know, but we definitely, you know, a lot of people are leaving, they're abandoning Jesus, and now he turns to his 12 disciples, and he's going to ask them a very important question. Verse 67. Then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you as a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. So many people are walking away. They're not following Jesus anymore. They're abandoning Jesus. These ones who said, Oh, we want to make him king. We want to follow him. The ones that I'm sure the disciples are, Oh, this is so great, man. We had this wonderful crowd. Look at, they all came to our, you know, a synagogue service here. Everything's going well. And then boom, they're all scattered. Wow, that, that didn't last very long. And then Jesus looks at them. Do you guys want to go as well? Do you want to leave me like all the rest of these have? And then Peter gives a great answer. I think that Peter's answer would have fit with 11 of the disciples, not with Judas, and Jesus is going to bring up that reality. Judas is you know, like the devil. He's the one who's going to betray. Judas didn't believe what Peter says here, but I believe the rest did. Notice what Peter says. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter understood something very important as everybody else is walking away. And it's just those 12 that are still there. And Jesus says, are you going to go as well? He understands you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You're the ones with the words of life. So who else are we going to go to? Where else would we go? Since this is who you are, and this is the words of life that you offer, why would we go anywhere else? Who would we go that we could get this from? Who could offer this to us? There isn't anyone else. Only you can meet the spiritual hunger that we have only you can meet the spiritual need only you have the words of life only you can save only you can give me eternal life in heaven peter recognizes this and so when jesus says are you guys going to leave he'd be like well where would we go who would we follow where would we leave to i mean look at who you are and what you offer no way we're going anywhere This is so important for you and I to grasp about Jesus. You know what? The enemy, he's constantly trying to get us to leave Jesus or at least to just be satisfied with something other than Jesus. To try to fill that spiritual hunger in our life with something other than Jesus, other than His Word and there's this regular attack that's saying hey satisfy yourself in this walk away you know that's a hard saying do you really want to accept that you know look what i have to offer It's so much easier to accept it's going to be so much more rewarding it's going to be so much more fulfilling come satisfy yourself in this and oftentimes we find ourselves seeking to do that and what the enemy offers us is just like cotton candy you know it tastes good for a moment But then it's gone quickly. It has no lasting satisfaction. It doesn't meet your hunger. It just leaves you wanting more. It leaves you tasteless after just a few moments. It leaves you still hungry. It's only feasting on Jesus and His Word that's going to satisfy the spiritual hunger, that's going to make us spiritually healthy. You know, oftentimes, if you're anything like me, you choose not to eat healthy food and you choose to eat unhealthy food because you think healthy food tastes gross in comparison I mean, the unhealthy food is amazing tasting and the healthy food doesn't taste very good. The unhealthy food is more satisfying to my mouth and my belly and the healthy food is not. Yes, the healthy food is better for me. Yes, the healthy food will keep me from a lot of negative you know, diseases and problems. But there's a part of me that says, you know, what? I just rather have what tastes good now and forget the health side of it. And I think as we approach spiritual life, we kind of bring that same kind of mentality, but the problem is we see Jesus as the healthy food that's good for my life, but it doesn't taste good. It's good for me, I know the Bible says it, but it's kind of like that, you know, that broccoli or that spinach or, or that stuff that's steamed with no taste or it just tastes gross and, you know, that's kind of Jesus and, you know, he's healthy, he's good for me, but he's not something that satisfies, he's not something that I enjoy. But man, this other stuff that tastes good what the enemy is offering whoo that's that's tasty that's like a, a big bowl of bluebell ice cream you know that's really what I want and the problem with that thinking is it's false that's what the enemy wants us to believe oh Jesus yeah he might be good for you it doesn't taste good does he he's not enjoyable I mean look what I'm giving that's really what's gonna taste good that's really what's gonna be enjoyable come on indulge yourself in this you know Jesus tells us the opposite is true In John 10.10, he says, the thief does not come except to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. The thief is Satan. And all he's coming to do is to steal from you. He's coming to destroy your life. Guess what? Jesus, on the other hand, He not only gives life, we're told He gives it more abundantly. He gives a life that's truly enjoyable, that's truly satisfying, that's a blessing. It's not like the healthy food that doesn't taste good. Jesus' life and what He gives is abundant. It's wonderful. It tastes better than anything that the enemy can give, anything that the world can offer. What Jesus gives, not only in eternity, but in this life now, is so much more satisfying, is so much more full of joy and peace, enrichment. And we can't buy into the lie that he's kind of, you know, that that healthy food that's good for me but I really don't want it cuz I don't think it's going to taste good. I don't think it's going to be, you know, something enjoyable. No, it's healthy and it tastes good. It's amazing. Don't we wish those two went together? But in Jesus they do. He's tasty and he's good for you spiritually. What does your spiritual diet consist of? What is it you are consuming to try to meet that spiritual hunger in your life. You are what you eat spiritually. So make sure you're feasting on Jesus. Make sure you're feasting on His Word. Because Jesus, He's the Son of God. He's the one with the words of life. And so as Peter said, we should say as well, to whom shall we go? Where else are we going to find anything like this? Where else are we going to get any satisfaction like this? It's only in Jesus. And don't buy into the lie that it exists anywhere else because it doesn't. Where else should we go? Nowhere. We're sticking here with You, Jesus. You have everything that we need. We don't need anything else. We don't need to try to find something that You don't possess, that You don't give somewhere else because You give us all we need. Psalm 34.8 says, says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in Him. That's a great challenge. Taste and see the Lord is good. He tastes good. He brings joy. He brings peace. Blessed will you be if you make that choice to trust in Him. Give your life to Him. Follow Him. Not look for satisfaction from things that don't satisfy Let's pray.